0: East.co. This week we're counting down the top five episodes of 2022. Coming in at number two is Todd Boley, the next Berkshire Hathaway. Todd owns everything from stakes in the LA Dodgers and Chelsea Football Club to Fintech's like case. During our conversation, he describes how he applies his credit background to making it all work. Tomorrow, Will reveal the top episode of the year. Want to take a guess at who it is? Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose: to simplify the administration of M and A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocators.com. My guest on today's show is Todd Boley, the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Eldridge a multi-billion dollar permanent capital holding company with investments in 80 businesses, including high-profile brands like the Los Angeles Dodgers, Dick Clark Productions, and The Hollywood Reporter, and an array of companies across other industries, including media, insurance, real estate, asset management, and technology. Combining its structure and Todd's acumen, CNBC recently postured that Eldridge may be the next Berkshire Hathaway. Our conversation covers Todd's early beginnings in structured credit, growing an asset management business at Guggenheim, and the formation of Eldridge. We then turn to his investment strategy and investments in asset management, media, gaming, and technology. Along the way, we discuss Todd's thoughts on sourcing, negotiation, structure, management, capital allocation, and the future of Eldridge. Please enjoy my conversation with Todd Bowley. Todd, great to see you. Good to see you, Ted. Well, no, the last time we were together was something like 20 years ago, and you were a couple of years out of banking at Whitney. A lot's changed since then. <laughs> and I'd love to dive into your path from there on.
1: Sure. Well, thank you very much for coming, and it's great to see you again. I was at Whitney, and I was super excited to be there. We were pretty cutting edge at the time. I think we were Blackstone before Blackstone became Blackstone. We had private equity. We had hedge funds. We had credit. We had private mezzanine debt. So we had the asset classes covered. And I think we were there in a really interesting time. They started at a mid-market buyout shop. And remember, they made that investment in Kana Communications and they put $2 million into Kana and it became 170. And all of a sudden, the partners at Whitney decided, this is a pretty interesting business model. And Whitney 4 was a billion dollars. And I think when NASDAQ 5000 became NASDAQ 2000, it didn't look like a billion dollars anymore. Right? <laughs> so they had a decision to make and I was working on the credit side and was getting exposure to the private equity side and the private debt side, but there wasn't a lot of sponsorship for the credit business there. So rather than compete with everyone in the private equity lane, I decided, all right, I'll go deep on this credit thing. And we had a billion and a half, $2 billion of assets under management and I basically became head of special situations and bank debt investing at Whitney, really because no one else wanted it. I took that opportunity, and I got to know the guys over at Guggenheim, and they had had some CBOs that had gotten in trouble. And having structured CBOs in my first life at CS First Boston, I had gotten to learn the left side of the balance sheet at Whitney, and I had learned the right side of the balance sheet at First Boston. So that gave me the opportunity to restructure some CBOs that had gotten in trouble. Because at the same time, in 2000, you had a lot of this telecom business that ended up going bad, which made a lot of the CBOs go bad. So Mark Walter over at Guggenheim was the controlling class in three CBOs that had gotten underwater. So he called me and said, Can you help me fix these? Their AAA bonds had gotten downgraded to C. So the rating agencies basically said, you can kind of do whatever you want with these CBOs now that we've downgraded them all the way from AAA to triple C. And we'd love to be able to make the statement that no AAA debt has ever gone bad. So basically, we turned three CBOs that represented about a billion three into trading vehicles that were financed with low-cost debt.
0: So 20 years ago, structured credit was relatively nascent. You're talking about CBOs. Most people think of them as CDOs today, but then it was bonds as opposed to just debt. What did you learn from your experience early on in the structured credit world that carried through to everything you did since?
1: Well, you started really learning how finance companies worked. And to me, a CLO or a CBO or a CDO is really a bank with a limited life. I think you really learn quickly that credit is the most important thing. And I think credit is kind of a fundamental tenant in all things capital markets and finance. So by being able to really go deep on credit and learn about what really drove performance, that gave me a, a real insight. And it was also great because when you're lending money, it's almost like dating. You can break up easily when you get paid off, but you also have a front row seat to understanding businesses, industries, management teams in a lower risk way than if you're at the bottom of the capital structure.
0: So how did you take that forward?
1: I had started taking these CBOs over for Mark and Guggenheim and it was really a company called Liberty Hampshire, which was one of the original vehicles that formed Guggenheim. And you felt the world moving at Whitney because Whitney Four had not performed to the limited partners' expectations. And basically the message that came back was, all right, Whitney, you need to get back to your basics. And having now started to manage these distressed CBOs for Mark, I called him up and said, there's something going to go on here. Either the team's going to go in a lot of directions and we're all going to go off and do our own thing, or maybe we can buy the business from Whitney because they're going to be looking to exit the business just based on how I'm reading the tea leaves. And if we showed up with some cash for the business, then I think they'd look very fondly on that as it created a solution for something that needed a solution just because of what the limited partners were saying.
0: So you and the team joined Guggenheim with whatever it is, one, two billion in assets. And over that subsequent period of time, it just took on a its own trajectory. So what were the key milestones in that path at Guggenheim?
1: Yeah. So October 24th, 2001, right after 9-11, we ended up moving to Guggenheim. So six of us that left Whitney and formed the credit business at Guggenheim. And the first large client was a large shareholder of Guggenheim, was Midland, and Midland was an insurance business that was owned by Salmons in Dallas. And our first job was to go deep on 10 names that Salmons had invested in. And if you recall, that was right when Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, there was these large investment grade businesses that were basically, if you boil it all down, they were showing earnings but their CapEx was so large that their CapEx was greater than their earnings. So they're actually relying on the capital markets to fund themselves. And Salmon's at the time owned $68 million or so worth of Enron bonds. So I remember Thanksgiving of 2001 was going deep on Enron. And when we were spreading Enron to figure out what Enron was really all about, we basically called up the CEO of Salmon's And at the time, the Enron bonds were trading right around 88, 90 cents on the dollar, depending on the bond. And we basically made the recommendation to sell the Enron debt. And the CEO of Salmon's at the time said, you guys are wrong. We shouldn't sell Enron. And we don't want to take a 10-point loss on 68 million bonds. And we said, okay, well, we don't see how the business is not 100% reliant on the capital markets. They had also sold off all their hard assets. They'd sold off their pipelines. They were going into fiber and fiber trading and, and a lot of businesses that weren't really investment grade type businesses. So we said, okay, obviously there's your bonds, not our bonds. So you can decide whatever you'd like to do with them. And then of course, within a couple of weeks, the whole thing fell apart. So the bonds went into the 20s and 30s, and we're trading without accrued interest. So all of a sudden, the $68 million position had a market value of $0.25 cents of the $68 million. And Bob, to his credit, called us up and said, all right, well, I guess I'm going to listen to you going forward. <laughs> so that then gave us the credibility to then really build the credit business at Guggenheim. And Salmons and Midland We're early investors in all of our funds. So we started with CLOs and we launched a CLO called 1888. And we started really figuring out how we could get multiple asset classes inside of a single CLO. That gave us a much broader funnel to select assets from, which I've always thought that is the key is to have a really broad funnel. So then now we're in 2002, we're growing our CLO business and we then launched our first private credit business. So we launched a a fund that was 100% dedicated to originating debt directly and we got in that business. And then I got to know Mike Milken and Mike Milken ended up becoming an early investor in a separately managed account that then we morphed into a much larger hedge fund. So now we had CLOs, we had private credit, we had hedge funds. So we were starting to fill out our our product suite. From there, we were just able to continue to really grow the team. And ultimately come 2008 now, the 2009, I remember seeing Freescale get bought out. And that was a big acquisition that was done with a lot of debt. And that was the first time Covenant Light debt started really creeping into the market. And I think the free-scale debt was LIBOR plus 225, and it was seven times levered when there was a lot of capex in the business. So from an EBITDA less capex, it was even more levered than that. And that was when we just said, okay, maybe the market's a little too heated. So we were private at Guggenheim, so we didn't have to think about protecting market share or growing. So basically we've said, all right, we're just gonna protect what we have, and not look to keep growing. And that was a, a really great decision because then 09 hit and we didn't have a lot of stuff to be bailing out. We were really happy with the portfolio that we had. And when we were able to see what was going on in the markets after 09, Mike Milken really then went deep with us and he allocated a significant amount of capital and we were able to get a lot of the people he knew into our funds. And we launched something called NZCG, which was a hedge fund that launched really right at the start of the financial crisis. And our timing couldn't have been better. We ended up buying senior bank debt at 50, 60 cents on the dollar. And literally within four months, it was back at 85, 90 cents on the dollar. So that gave us a really good opportunity to continue to grow.
0: So, just as a sense of scale, how big had that credit business and all the things around it gotten at Guggenheim?
1: It was over 50 billion, 60 billion of assets or thereabouts. But before I left Guggenheim, I was also the head of the asset management business. So, now in what we had built was a much broader asset management business at Guggenheim, the non investment grade credit business was one leg of the business, but we had a a very large investment grade business. We had a very large structured credit business and we made a couple acquisitions. So we acquired something called Claymore, which had ETFs and closed end funds. And then we acquired RIDEX and we did that in 2010. RIDEX was owned by Security Benefit, which was an insurance company that needed capital. We were able to provide the capital And then we separated RIDEX and Security Benefit, and we rolled RIDEX into our Claymore Guggenheim asset management business, which then gave us a mutual fund business. And then we launched mutual funds at Guggenheim, which today they represent probably $50 of AUM is in our six flagship mutual funds that we started at Guggenheim around 2011, 2012.
0: At what point in time did you decide to launch Eldridge?
1: I think I had had a great run and really am excited about all that I did at Guggenheim for almost 15 years, but when I was given the opportunity to go out on my own, that was inspiring, and you had the opportunity to go build something, and I had built a great business at Guggenheim with great partners, and now it was the opportunity for me to go and do it in my own direction. And obviously, you know, partnerships are kind of like marriages. You're sharing a vision. You're sharing a goal. And now at Eldridge, I get to craft it without having to think about other complexities. It's really what is it that we want to build and what is it that we want to do? And for me, growing businesses is so exciting. It's what I want to do. And Guggenheim made the decision that they wanted to really go deep in fixed income asset management, insurance asset management, and investment banking sales and trading. But that gave me the opportunity to acquire the media assets, to acquire the real estate businesses, all the stuff that I had been building at Guggenheim that was in its infancy, frankly, because that was not what they wanted and I understood it. So it was a great opportunity for me to build on what I had started and a great opportunity for me to kind of cast my own direction and exactly how I want to spend my time.
0: So what is that vision for what you wanted to do at Eldridge?
1: Early on, it was, let's build a company that can have a very broad perspective on what it invests in and ultimately leverage all the experience that we got got across industries. You always want to be looking for places where it's less competitive versus others. And to me, starting businesses from scratch, growing them on the ground floor, when prices are really high, it's cheaper to start a business. And when prices are less high, it might be cheaper and less timely to buy a business. So you have to continuously be looking at that continuum. So we're constantly buying businesses and starting businesses here. And that flexibility really allows us to capture what we think are the best opportunities because our mandate is different than an asset manager's. Our mandate is to continuously find places where you think your unit of return exceeds the unit of risk. To me, this is all just probabilities. And ultimately, I wanna be having the broadest lens to be able to play in And then, of course, you continuously get better and better and better because you get management teams that you're attached to that help you navigate different markets. So now we have over 80 companies that we've invested in, and that means I have 80 CEOs that are telling me what they're seeing out on the horizon. So that, to me, is extremely valuable.
0: How did you decide what structure to put on Eldridge?
1: Well, I knew I wanted a holding company that was permanent. I was able to find an investor who the two of us basically were able to form Eldridge and have the combination of assets and cash that came in, you know, at time zero when we formed it was in the billions of dollars. So that gave us a really good flywheel that was spinning. And ultimately, I knew that. If I could continue to grow our insurance business, and our insurance business needed its assets managed, that we could be building companies in partnership with our insurance company and have rates of return generated in two places. We could get rate of return at the insurance company itself for the asset management activity. And then in something like CBAM, for example, we started that from scratch. Eldridge put in $20 million to get it up and running, and Security Benefit became a very large client. So immediately CBAM had value, given the fact that it had equity capital and a very large client. And ultimately, I think we'll we'll be able to show that we're gonna create massive amounts of value on the back of the fact that you had these two constituencies, both that are getting their needs serviced by having managers that, you can control. So if things aren't going right, it's really easy to shut it down, go into runoff. But if things are going right, then you continue to play into the probabilities and feed the stars.
0: How much of what you've done are some form of an asset management business, CBAM credit business within Eldridge, where you have the benefit of owning security benefit. So you have the need for asset management services, and then you provide them. I think our real
1: estate activity, we do real estate lending, we do real estate development buy real estate businesses. When COVID hit, one of the very first things I went looking for was industrial warehousing business, because I figured we got to get bigger in industrial warehousing because e-commerce is just going to continue to boom. So I found a guy who was a senior guy at Prologis but Every one of those in my brain looks a little bit like an asset management business, whether it's Stonebriar, whether it's Blackbrook, whether it's Seabram, Hudson Structured. We helped ARC buy out their equity, so we have a financing relationship with ARC. So we have a lot of these that look a lot similar to the asset management, even though some of them aren't technically asset management businesses. Some of them are leasing companies or some of them are industrial warehouse REITs or EPRT, which was a, another REIT that we started and took public. And But really, these are all asset management businesses. And what we really want is a very diverse portfolio at security benefit that generates yield and rate of return, regardless of what happens in one sleeve of a universe.
0: How do you think about the media assets? You mentioned that you had bought those when you started up Eldridge
1: a lot of it's like rights trading you think about the value of media rights and the Dodgers transaction was a perfect one in that regard where we bought the team in 2012 in 2013 those media rights were coming up for sale so what you would have been able to pay in 2014 would have been very different than what you would have been able to pay in 2012 because if you bought the Dodgers after those meteorite deals were done and the previous owner kept those meteorites, then you wouldn't have gotten that value. Ultimately, we did a lot of work on what's the value in broadcasting the game to 5 million homes. What is that worth? And Ultimately, we came to a conclusion that we were very able to pay $2 billion because those meteorites were effectively an investment-grade bond because you're going to get the offtake from, in our example, CBS, Fox, Time Warner, all of those parties were interested in broadcasting the game, and all of them were investment-grade counterparties that were going to give you a long-term contract to broadcast the media rights. So that's a derivative. So when we're looking at Dick Clark, Dick Clark has the similar type of thing. It's got long-term licensing agreements with NBC for the Golden Globes, with NBC for billboards, with ABC for New Year's and Eve. But ultimately, you know what the license fee is going to be that's coming from whether it's Walt Disney or Comcast or these companies that are all $250 billion plus all borrow money at 3%. You're getting paid a different rate of return than that because you're doing it through the media rights structure as opposed to just lending them money as an investment grade counterparty. And what I always love about media rights, if you don't get paid, you don't have to foreclose. You just take your rights back and you go distribute them again and you have to worry about the noise over here. But if you're lending money to a company and you don't get paid, you've got to go through a process to get your money back. When in the media right world, you just say, okay, you're not paying me. I'm taking them back and I'm going to monetize them elsewhere. So, yeah, you'll still have a probably a lawsuit over here that you have to deal with, but you don't have to go through a lawsuit in order to get control of the asset. You can just resell it. So, again, I think of those as media rights and and then big brands billboard and hollywood reporter are now part of penske media and i always thought that billboard hollywood reporter had these giant brands and now you know we're a partner in penske media that owns rolling stone and vibe and variety and billboard and hollywood reporter and these are businesses that figured out how to become digital assets and they are generating massive amounts of cash flow now because of the fact that they've been able to pivot They've kept their brand recognition, but they've transitioned their business model. They're not magazines anymore. They're digital. I mean, there's one out of three people every week ends up on one of Variety, Billboard, Hollywood Reporter, Rolling Stone, or Vibes websites. So that is a giant audience attractor. And what you're doing is valuing those audiences.
0: have you thought about the whole area of gaming?
1: I love gaming because I think it's a great engagement factor. And if you're looking at the gaming world and what's going on in gaming, right, and we were early investors in DraftKings and watching how it went from a fantasy business into a sports betting business was what I thought was a very natural evolution. And ultimately, I think you're going to end up with a whole new model for watching sports. You're going to have base services, which are the kind of services that you have today, you're going to have enhanced services where you can loyalty gamble, let's call it, where you're not actually putting dollars to work. But if I'm with my son and my son's five years old and I want to be engaged in a Dodger game, I want to be able to say, oh, "Is this going to be a curveball? Is this going to be a fastball? Is it?" Going? And the more you engage with that, the more loyalty points you'll get, and the more loyalty points you'll get, the more stuff you'll be able to get at the stadium when you go for the next time and then of course there's the version where there's real money gambling in the screen and you kind of profile your viewing experience so you can see the stats that you want to see in order to figure out do i really want to be betting or what bets do i want to make and that's kind of the premium version of the experience and the thing that separates us from being able to get there is obviously not all the states allow gambling yet but I think in 10 years' time, that will be the case. It's all about rights. It's where the rights sit. The rights are the real challenge right now. It's not the technology, the technology exists, but the rights need to be unpacked and unbundled. And of course, if you look at baseball, for example, the rights within each team are different. The NFL has been super smart because they negotiate with one voice. So they do one media contract that covers the whole league and the reason Green Bay exists is because every team gets 132nd of that. So if you look at baseball, the old legacy was if it's local, it's the teams. And if it's national, that's the leagues. And then all the national gets split. Well, that means that Milwaukee's out negotiating its local deal. And you've got every city, every team negotiating their local deal on their own without leverage. These are giant media companies that they're facing off against. And you usually only have two or three options as to who you're going to choose if you're in Milwaukee. Maybe you end up with Comcast. Or, and, of course, Sinclair bought the old regional sports networks from Disney that they acquired when they bought Fox. But there's no leverage in a conversation when they're one-offs. So ultimately, somehow, these rights need to be come back together. So the benefit of the collective is able to negotiate with the media companies for the distribution of the game. And ultimately it's gonna be direct to consumer because there's no reason to go through MVPDs in order to get to your customer. But all these rights have to burn off. And the challenge with them all is since they're all done at different times, Detroit just had a chance to go its own direction. But Detroit decided that it was going to sell its media again the old way in order to make sure they got the cash flow because someone's going to have to provide what's basically gap financing as the model pivots.
0: So much of what you're describing, this common stream, you can hearken back to the credit world. I'm curious, in this world where there's so much interest in technology and growth assets. How are you thinking about all the developments of technology in your investments?
1: It's a great question. We've been very active in tech. And the reason that we got active was because we decided that we didn't want to be afraid. And I'm not a technology investor by background, but we have a lot of companies and those companies have a lot of challenges. And a lot of those challenges are going to get solved by tech. So really we took at the view of, okay, we have these companies, we think about them as laboratories. What are the right laboratories that we're already in? What are the right solutions that are tech enabled? So for example, the very first tech investment we made was something called Replay Technologies. And Replay Technologies, it's if you watch home plate or if you watch the basketball or if you watch now football and they give you 360 degree views, that was a technology that we invented at Dodger Stadium. So, we had nine cameras that were installed at Dodger Stadium, and that gave the ability to construct a 360 degree view around home plate. So, ultimately, we thought that was a cool capability. So, we figured, all right, we'll put a little bit of money in, we'll give Dodger Stadium as the platform. So, Dodger Stadium and the Dodgers ended up benefiting from that. So, then We ended up selling that to Intel and Intel ended up then commercializing it with all the leaks. But if I had thought about it from a point of view of does this technology work, I would have really not been able to figure that out without Dodger Stadium as the laboratory. But by using Dodger Stadium as the laboratory to install the cameras and to test the product and then to get real feedback, it became clear to us that this was additive to the viewing experience. So we try to use our businesses as technology. So, And then, of course, as we've gotten more comfortable, our network and our relationships have developed. So now we can use our network and our relationships in order to get access to, if you look at our portfolio, we've got a company called Truebill, which people think about Truebill as a service that helps track your spend. I think about Truebill as the only digital liability advisor, and no one really has their own liability advisors. Everyone spends all their time on their assets, but no one thinks about, oh, if I hack out my liabilities and make it more efficient, every dollar saved on the liability side is no different than a dollar earned on the asset side. So all of a sudden, Truebill now is integrated into millions of people who track their spending every month. And to me, that was a great experience in watching people understand how important it is to manage their liabilities. Companies all the time have liability management exercises, but individuals don't. So to me, that was a white space where we could go out and say, okay, how are people actually spending their money? And when you actually link all your payments and link your credit cards and link your accounts, you can start to track it really easily to see where you're spending your money. And because it's so easy to see it becomes easy to save. So it's in one place and you can see, why am I spending this much on Sirius? Why am I spending this much on my cell phone? Why am I spending this much on my cable company? And they even give you alerts when it's too much. So whenever you can find tech enabled solutions that exist in corporate world, but aren't there for individuals, that also gets us excited. So we see that with Stash, we see that with Truebill, we see that with PayActive. These are all kind of solutions around solving some problem that tech allows to fix versus, you know, a legacy world. I'm
0: curious how you think about sourcing opportunities, because it feels like you're investing in something that's tangential and then pulling a thread out of that same theme. Where do these ideas come from?
1: One of the things we care a lot about is the relationships that we have. And we try to give quick no's and we try to give quick yeses. And because we're not investing out of funds, and we don't have investment committees, and we don't have complexity, usually funky, interesting things end up at a place like ours. So I'll get phone calls where someone says, I've got this situation, and they start to go through the dynamics of the situation, which make it clear that it's almost like a special situation of types. And we want to be able to respond to those when there is a complexity or there's a reason why this business is going to trade at this level and we think it's going to end up being worth this or we've already got a buyer built in and the buyer's not ready today, but there's no guarantee the buyer will show up, but the probabilities are high that the buyer will ultimately show up. And you think about yourselves as just being a bridge that's going to make a really compelling rate of return for a period of time. So we find a lot of these interesting opportunities. And then also I don't compete directly with anyone. So I can be Switzerland and I don't need control as long as I have structural seniority. So I tell everyone, if you want control, all I want is then a preferred. If I have control, then I don't need a preferred, but I don't want to give someone else control and not have structural protections. So we have a really kind of easy methodology that people can appreciate because it's pretty simple to explain.
0: So when you started with that credit lens, And now you're in this box that's different and collaborative with a lot of people. I'm curious what you've learned about negotiations in all of this.
1: Yeah. One of the things I've learned is to sit back and listen more. Just listen. And I think so many people want to be heard that sometimes people forget that everything that you can say, you already know. And all the real juicy stuff (laughs) is in what everyone else is going to tell you to be a really good listener is the number one thing and really try to understand what is it that that person wants. I mean, one of the guys who Joe Carabino over at Whitney, he always used to say, you gotta get in that guy's shoes, get in that guy's shoes, figure out why he's interested in the deal, figure out what he wants out of it, and then figure out how to work within that understanding So you can find a place where you're not going to collide. So I think that the key for us is to listen and to be able to move quickly. I think that puts us in demand. Because if you're a good listener and you can move quickly and make decisions quickly, I think there's a lot of people that want to work with you.
0: How do you think about the advantages of your funding structure today?
1: The best part I get to tell people is I follow your lead. We have CEOs that want to be public companies. We have CEOs that never want to be public companies. The good news is our model is such that as long as it's compounding and growing, I don't need to sell my winners in order to prove a point. Of course, like EPRT, Essential Properties, you know we had a great CEO and his dream was to run a public company. So we were perfectly suited to help that, but we can be really flexible with finding out what someone wants relative to what we want. And what we want is just continue to grow value. I tell people all the time, just focus on the left side of the business, the balance sheet, grow that, grow the assets, make it worth more money. How you ring the bell is just an exercise. Ultimately, if your slaves are focused on the left side of the balance sheet and growing the assets or the value of the business, to me, how you manage the right side of the balance sheet so easy, so really go deep on the left side, focus on the left side. And If you're a CEO and you decide that you want to sell the company, great, we're there for you. If you're a CEO and you decide you want to keep going, great, we're there for you. For us, we can respond so easily to whatever the leader wants. And I think that's unique. And we're not going to be the ones to tap on someone's shoulder and say, oh, we got to sell our best three assets in order to go raise our next fund. And probably if you played those out another three or five years, you probably wouldn't have made the same decision. So you're making decisions based on things other than that specific asset. And we try to make the decisions based on that specific asset.
0: What are some of the best lessons you've learned from these 80 CEOs of the companies you invest with?
1: As fast as we try to move and to get stuff done, there are very much times where you just need to slow down and listen and think. Don't get confused between action and progress. And there's a lot of action out there, and sometimes it doesn't result in progress. So I've learned a lot from just watching people who are very good at their industry and know their industry cold. And Stonebriar is an equipment leasing business and Dave Fate who runs it, it's his third time running an equipment leasing business. And I tried to build an equipment leasing business before and didn't have the right people. And so I was kind of skeptical that he'd be able to do what he's been able to do, but it's because he's got the best relationships. So it comes back down to relationships, knowledge, skill sets, and maturity. And also, there's really no reason to ever get upset. You can get angry and you can get yell and you can scream, but I just don't find that to be productive. And the really good leaders are the ones who can balance their kind of emotional responses and cut through the BS in order to find the right answer. And you're gonna have challenges. We're taking risks, we're not buying treasuries. So to me, that ultimately comes with some level of complexity. So you have to have the stomach for that. You can't let emotions dictate decisions. And the best leaders are the ones that I find are the calmest at the times of most intensity.
0: I had Matt Brown on the show a couple weeks ago. I know that's one of the recent deals you've done. And I'd love to just take the lens of the way you think about businesses and say, what was it that interested you and your thesis in investing in Case?
1: So I think Matt's got an unbelievable opportunity. I think if you look at distribution and demand for alternative assets, he's got a opportunity to transition from a legacy business to a fintech platform. And of course, if you can think about the value creation that goes from being a distribution business into a FinTech platform that's got distribution. He's offering alternative asset managers access into the registered investment advisor community. So to be able to take out all of the complexity, but to be able to go to whoever the name is and say, you have this massive registered investment advisor universe that is short alternatives and is looking for places to create yield because there is no fixed income investment grade business anymore. So if you look at where the investment grade bond market is today, two and a half, three and a half, what is it, right? Triple Cs are trading at four and a half or five. So you think about that as a fixed income asset class. There's no yield in that anymore. Therefore, people are going to have to go find yield. And the place that they're going to go is in alternative asset management. Matt is the gateway. So he connects the alternative asset manager who has the know-how with the registered investment advisor who has the demand. So if we can do that in a really elegant, streamlined fashion, and he's launched Case IQ, which is going to help educate people so make them feel informed about the decisions that they're making, I think his business is booming. It's never been stronger. Frankly, I think we were in the right place at the right time on that one and really bullish on what that platform is going to look like over the next 24 months.
0: What does Eldridge look like over the next 24, years, 10 years?
1: I just hope it continues to grow. I used to tell everyone at Guggenheim that if you're not growing, you're dying. And ultimately, some people would be like, why would you say that? And the reality is that if you're not giving people opportunity to evolve and grow, then you're creating an environment that's stagnant. So, my job is to continue to grow so I can continue to grow all the human capital around me and give them opportunities in order to step up and grow. So, to me, I just want to keep compounding and growing Eldridge. I want to keep finding interesting businesses to invest in. And I want to keep getting closer and closer to the sourcing of those opportunities. And sometimes that means finding Matt's business and he needed $50 million of capital in order to grow to get to the next level. He needed new board members. He needed a new CTO. He needed a lot of which we were able to help him get. So finding businesses like that that have these great opportunities, and you can see how it works on a whiteboard, but the problem with the whiteboard is the stick people aren't the same as the humans. Right? <laughs> so you know the humans never behave like the stick people on the whiteboard, but ultimately, We've got experience, resources, knowledge, and it's for us, it's finding those businesses and keep growing with them. We've done some stuff in Europe, but I want to keep growing in Europe. I want to keep growing in the US. You know, I also am not highly motivated to go to places that are far flung just because you can only manage so many things. And I think everything's local in the end. And if you don't have a real local presence, it's why you know anyone has said, well, why don't you go buy into China right now? China's depressed or China's stock prices are down. Or, and it's just like, I don't have any edge. And if I don't have an edge, then I don't know why I'm doing it. Ultimately, if you're not local in what you're doing or you don't have a local presence that you trust, I think it's hard to do. But I do think that we'll continue to go deeper in tech, I think we'll continue to find great asset management businesses. We're a large shareholder in uh, Digital Bridge. I love watching what Digital Bridge has done as they've transitioned from kind of a legacy real estate asset management business called Colony Capital into Mark Gansey's led Digital Bridge where he's building just massive businesses around this digital infrastructure world. We're building data centers with Iconic. And we're also really looking for partners that offer unique insight where, and of course, what we can do is if we find the the right partner, we can invest in the fund and then co-invest. And to me, it's almost like we're just looking as blunkers with our lights on and our helmets and trying to figure out where the best places to go, where the most growth is going to be in the future.
0: As you're spinning this flywheel over time, I'm really curious how you think about capital allocation at the Eldridge level as each of these investments almost as its own business unit?
1: We're here to feed the stars. And the ones that aren't surviving are the ones that we'll pull out of. And we've shut down a couple businesses and we've had challenges where things haven't worked out. But our ability to kind of shut those down and run them off or pivot away from them, you just have to have the fortitude to say, okay, well, this isn't working, time to move on. And you can't spend a lot of time lamenting the things that have gone wrong. Learn your lessons, take your medicine and move on and use it as one more thing. I think it was Mandela who said, we don't fail, we either win or we learn. And I think that's our, our attitude. Our goal is to win or to learn. And you know, occasionally learnings come with failure. But don't be afraid of failure. One of the things that my dad always told me when we were skiing is like, if you're not falling, you're not learning. But of course you don't want to go off a cliff. Right? So, uh, you know, but again, it's kind of like the whole credit mentality where you, you date a little bit before you go deep and everything we've done, we've always take a very measured approach. People would tell me, well, making movies is a really risky business. Well, the way we started making movies was we would sell off the foreign rights Market by market, so you could go to Germany and you could get a million dollars for Germany and you can get two million for the UK. And so if we sold the rights, we knew we could get enough money to make a movie. Then we had the US domestic as the upside and the movie got paid for by selling off all the international rights. That didn't feel like a really risky business model. Yeah, not all the movies worked, but if they were all paid for and you weren't deficit financing them, then... What's your downside?
0: So in between that digital zero one, you're going to feed the stars and, and cut off the ones that are really failing. How do you have the opportunity to reallocate capital within the businesses that you expect to continue to hold for the long term?
1: Last year, we made over a billion dollars. Every year now, we're making so much money that we got to keep reinvesting that. And so I think we have the flexibility to reinvest wherever we go, whatever those earnings are. We've got the ability to pivot into places where we feel like there's more growth. For me, right now, we're spending a lot of time looking at fintech and figuring out how do we get earlier and earlier and find good ideas, and then of course put a little bit of money in to test them. And then once you start seeing them develop, you can go deeper and deeper. And sometimes people say, well, you know, we made a four million dollar investment in that, or you, may, you know, how do you have time to have a balance sheet, but a lot of them are testing things with the idea that if they work, you're going to put a lot more money in them. But again, it's kind of like a a debt dating approach as you start to see, okay, I like this little idea of Layla or I like this little business. Let me get started in it and learn and let me watch. And then ultimately, if it becomes a bigger opportunity, then you can kind of allocate more capital towards it.
0: I want to take a chance before we go to ask you a couple of closing questions. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: As I said earlier, my dad taught me, if you're not falling, you're not learning and skiing. And skiing for me is is the thing I like to do the, the most when I'm not working. And I also love it because my three boys love it. And my wife loves it. When everyone's so exhausted after skiing all day long, There's no complaining, there's no whining, you know, everyone gets along. So there's nothing more exciting to me when everyone's too tired to fight. (laughs) So It's a great way to spend time with my boys and with my wife.
0: What's your most important daily habit?
1: I really like to exercise every day. So I generally get up and exercise first thing in the morning. Helps me clear my head, helps me start the day fresh and just is a good routine.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: I guess people who talk too much, not listening. It's just amazing to me when there's so much information out there to be gathered and some people just spend all their time talking. And to me, I just find listening so much more interesting.
0: How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: I really get frustrated when people talk about capitalization and cap structure before they talk about the business right? I really want to understand the business. I want to understand why it's valuable. I want to understand why it's going to continue to be valuable. And then I want to know who owns it and what's its capital structure. But I never want to start with who owns it and what's its capital structure. I always want to start with, forget the right side of the balance sheet. Tell me about the left side. I really want to understand the left
0: side. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: So for me, that's really easy. Mark Walter, CEO of Guggenheim and Mike Milken. I had the great fortune of being close to both of them for a very long time. And the knowledge that I've got from them, the fact that they really told me the truth. I remember one day asking Mark, like, well, I want certainty. And Mark ripped my head off and was like, what are you talking about certainty? There's no such thing as certainty. And then having the benefit of speaking to Mike about capital structure and business and industry and perspective and history and, all the stuff that he's seen and dealt with. Both of those experiences with both of them have been very memorable.
0: What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Well, I've made a lot of mistakes,
1: but I think early on trying to force things, forcing things or forcing answers or being short with time or not taking the time. I've now believed that sometimes the longer route is the shorter route. If you go out and you try to force something to happen, it almost always backfires on you. So you have to let it develop and you have to kind of stay on both sides of the path so the opportunity doesn't fall off the path. But at the same time, you can't go out and grab it and pull the opportunity down the path. And my experience with security benefit, if I had met that opportunity when I was 26 or seven, I'm sure I would have blown it. But by the time 2010 showed up, I took 18 months to get that deal done but I was patient. I was relaxed. I was calm. I knew my odds of getting it done were better than anyone else's. And so therefore I took the time to let it develop. And I think again, forcing things was one of my early mistakes. And, and, you know, I think as a manager, I've also learned a lot about like being calm, not reacting, but always taking a beat before you provide feedback.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: There's two things my dad always said, that if you're not falling, you're not learning. And then he always said, make sure you finish a job you start. And don't have a bunch of non-finished business, but always finish a job you start.
0: All right, Todd, one more. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Don't sweat the small stuff. That would be the thing that I would focus on. I mean, I think most of one's worrying is worrying about things that don't happen. So I spend most of my time trying to figure out how not to sweat the small stuff, how not to create my own drama that kind of adds to my own complexity, because generally the things that I'm worried about aren't the things that are gonna happen that go wrong. To be very adaptable and very responsive to things that happen and reflect on things that happen, but don't get twisted about things that might happen Because the odds of them happening are probably pretty low.
0: Todd, congrats again on all the success and thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Thanks a lot, Ted.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.